Well, this was precisely the plan of my friend, uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Uh, this was precisely the plan of myself and several other uh, advisors to the former Trump campaign in 2016. On Saturday, shots were fired in Kyiv. At least 3,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, and Ukrainians living in the capital are picking up arms. What does Putin ultimately want? What are the complications in the China-Russian Union? What is in the minds of Putin and Xi Jinping? Is something boiling below the surface? And what can the United States do and did do back in the Trump administration to leverage these complications? Joining us tonight, Brandon Weikert, geopolitical expert and author of the book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, who was one of the few who accurately predicted Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in January 2022. We talk about the latest updates on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the shared and conflicting interests among China, Russia and NATO, and the comparison between China and Russia in terms of the level of strategic threat to America. We also discuss, in the case of further military engagement between Russia and the rest of the world, the tactical areas that America should be most concerned about and how it should react. This is Forbidden News, and I'm Gary Bai. Brendan Weikert, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we'll start with the big picture here and we'll go into the, the few specifics. But, but first, Brendan, I kind of wanted to start by quoting something you wrote on Asia Times in early January. Quote, Russia's moves into Kazakhstan appears to have ameliorated the collective concern that Moscow was readying to annex eastern Ukraine. But this Russian move into Central Asia should not give any rest to wary Western leaders. Instead, Western leaders should anticipate a larger Russian strike into eastern Ukraine at some point in the next six months, end quote. So that was quite prescient. Uh, tell us a bit more back then about why you saw a likely invasion into Ukraine. Well, as George Carlin once joked, I'm ahead of my time. Sadly, it's only by about half an hour, but at least I'm still ahead. Um, no, but in all seriousness, we um, I was looking at the situation, looking at the buildup, uh, knowing Russian strategic doctrine as well as I do. Um, it was pretty obvious to me that what Vladimir Putin was attempting to do was two things. First, to keep the West off balance. So everybody, if you remember in January, was assuming he's going to go in. It's going to happen either in, you know, very early in January. And then, of course, he decided to sort of shift focus and go charging into northern Kazakhstan, um, which was completely unanticipated for, I mean, most Western analysts were completely shocked by that turn of events. Um, what I wrote at the time was uh, I thought that was merely the first step because basically what Putin is doing, think of it like a maestro conducting an orchestra. Uh, he is using, um, well, he has a huge country that uh, buttresses multiple other countries that are flashpoints for him, geopolitical flashpoints, whether it be Kazakhstan or massive China, even Japan to a degree, uh, and then of course the European side. Uh, so what he has to do when he's getting ready to make a big move like he was in Ukraine, he's got to also sort of check those other neighbors. Uh, and the Kazakhstan situation, I think, presented him a perfect opportunity to send a signal uh, to the West, hey, you can't predict what I'm going to do, but also to send a signal to his frenemy, Xi Jinping, the ruler of China, that I'm getting ready to do something big. It's going to divert a lot of forces and time uh, from the eastern part of Russia uh, into the western European side, but that's not a signal 
Mr. G, for you to get any bright ideas to try to push Russia out of what we view as our traditional sphere of influence in Central Asia, predominantly Kazakhstan. And so I think that's what was at play there, is that Putin was testing the waters to see what the world would do uh, if he were to do sort of a mini annexation operation. And then he was also sending messages to his near abroad, particularly China, we're still relevant don't you dare try anything. And if you work with us, maybe we can come, come up with a better deal uh, where China and Russia try to rule Eurasia and the world. Uh, and then, of course, he's sending signals at that time to Europe saying, you know what, um, get ready. I'm not going to let you know when I'm coming, but don't you get uh, relaxed for one second because I'm just getting started. And of course, that's what I was thinking at the time. And I ended up sadly, very sadly, I hate when I am. I'm sorry to say I was right. Uh, but here we are. Yeah, so um, there are a couple things from what you said that I kind of wanted to get into. Uh, first of all, let's uh, deal with the situation at hand here. So both Ukraine and Russia are currently at signal, at least, that they're open to negotiation. Yes. Tell us what you think of the prospect of this and what would Putin be pushing to achieve? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that, and I've written about this at the Asia Times as well as the Washington Times and American Greatness, where I usually publish now. Um, uh, basically... The Russians under Putin uh, might have been biting off more than they can chew. And what I mean by that is Russia certainly on paper is a larger, more dynamic military uh, than their Ukrainian rivals are. But the problem is Ukrainians have a home field advantage. They're fighting for their hearth and home. Uh, they're fighting for their families. Uh, furthermore, they've been given over the last few years, in particular, former President Donald Trump, he's not given enough credit for this, gave them billions of dollars in Ukraine worth of advanced, not just limited, but advanced uh, lethal aid in the form of javelin missiles, in the form of night vision goggles. We're finding that a lot of the Russian invaders going into Ukraine today don't have the night vision goggles that come standard now with Ukrainian forces. And then you throw in the Ukrainian will to fight, uh, and they're giving the Russians a lot of headaches. So they've bitten off more than they can chew in that way. But then also Vladimir Putin, I think, did a very bad job of preparing his people for the potentiality of a very long-term bloody con uh, conquest of Ukraine. And furthermore, the, the Russian people weren't really all that excited about diverting their limited resources and their limited people. Remember, Russia's going through a demographic crisis with a shrinking population, sending all those young men to go fight and possibly die or be maimed in the meat grinder that's going to become a Ukrainian war. And so Putin, I think right now, the reason he's looking possibly to talk to Volodymyr Zelensky, who's the president of Ukraine, uh, is because he's sensing that, hey, this, this uh, invasion of mine might go the way of George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. Starts out as a great idea on paper, but in execution, the whole thing blows up in my face. And of course, in the Russian system, when that happens, you don't just lose an election, you might lose your life and be overthrown by another oligarch. Uh, so uh, Putin's got to be worried about that. And so I think that also Putin's looking at this going, I have real political objectives. My main objective is to cleave the Russian-speaking populations of Ukraine in eastern Ukraine, Crimea, away from Ukraine and the West permanently. So 
I can maybe try to take the whole country, but the rest of the country outside those Russian-speaking parts don't want me around, and they're going to fight me, and they're going to bloody me, and they're going to try to bleed me dry until I leave and, and humiliated. So maybe, just maybe, if I put on a big enough forceful show in the beginnings of this war, I might get the Zelensky government to phone me up and say, hey, remember that Minx 2 agreement that we agreed on in 2015 that would have basically given you eastern Ukraine and Crimea and let me and Kiev keep the rest of Ukraine and let us do our own thing. Maybe that's the best deal. And certainly the Zelensky government does not want to see their people get slaughtered en masse because let's face it, the Russians are fighting uh, not well right now, but this is only the openings of the fight. And the longer this thing goes on, it's likely the Russians will adapt to the Ukrainian tactics and become to be very effective in their own right. So Zelensky's also looking for a way out, I think. And those Minsk II agreements might be the best way. Whether they take it, whether the Russians can get the deal, whether Putin ultimately wants to take the deal, or if he's just sensing how high of a resistance quotient Zelensky has for his invasion, that's another matter entirely. Ryan, we saw the, I, th I think they're called the Stingers, right? We saw yeah. them in, in play um, with, the, with the invasion of Russia. And, you know, there are reports from the front line that Russian tanks were, were essentially destroyed by, by those weapons that were, yeah. um, you know, gifted. No, but the Javelins, the Javelins. Yes. The Javelins, yeah. And those were given to the, the Ukrainians. It was, it's important to remember because the former President Trump, and I don't mean to defend everything he did, and I won't, but on the issue of Russia, it's a very complicated matter because former President Obama allowed for the Russians to annex Crimea and to start the crisis in eastern Ukraine in 2014 with doing very little in response. He refused former President Obama and, at the time, Vice President Biden, refused to lend lethal aid in the form of those Javelin rocket systems to the Ukrainians. And yet their successor, President Donald Trump, one of the first things he did, despite talking nice about Putin and trying to have a nice relationship with the Russian strongman, one of the first things that Trump did was he authorized the sale of large numbers of those Javelin missile systems and, again, the night vision goggles that, that are now helping uh, Ukrainian forces very well right now in their fight. This is all from the Trump administration. The Biden administration continued it on, but last year there was talk that they wanted to slow it down. They wanted to reassess that as part of a larger push to possibly get a deal with Russia. And boy, was the Biden administration, who promised us they'd be tougher than any president since Reagan on Russia, boy, was the Biden administration way wrong on Russia in terms of lethal aid and also to Ukraine, and also in terms of that Nord Stream 2 pipeline deal that basically overturned the Trump administration's sanctions on this critical Russian gas line going into Germany and allowed for the Germans to build the pipeline, which now is why you have Germany leading the quiet resistance within Europe to any greater American defense or NATO defense of Ukraine against Russia. Yeah, so that, that's the kind of the dynamic between Washington and, and Europe. Uh, I want to zoom in on your previous point on the frenemy between Russia and China. So now, while most of the spotlight is on Russia itself, many are warning about the prospect of a Russia-China union. Yet, according to your commentary on Russia's exercise in Central Asia, it tells us a different, it tells us a story isn't that simple. So tell us more about your thoughts on this. So we have to be very careful when we start trying to understand the complexities of a Eurasian military alliance. It is not going to look like the NATO alliance where you have, you know, uh, these like-minded regimes with shared values and similar governments and sort of a similar worldview from a similar culture. 
Uh, Russia and China are two very different countries from one another. They are neighbors, but that does not mean they have a, they have similarities in the sense they like autocracy, in the sense they don't like how America is behaving on the world stage. They think we're too imperious. Uh, they feel threatened by American power projection and our hold on the economic system. They don't like that. They don't like American culture necessarily, think we're too libertine, and maybe we are. Um, but the point is, those are some similarities. Uh, but ultimately, there are still many, many divergent interests and divergent um, worldviews dominating Moscow and Beijing. Um, so when I wrote that article on Kazakhstan in January of this year, what I was attempting to do was to say, hey, look, it's true and it's very concerning. Russia and China are moving closer together than they have in the last 50 years. And that could, once it really begins in earnest, that relationship could end up in a real marriage. However, there's a lot of steps between that day and where we are today. And what's going on now is Russia under Putin is very aware that they are relatively weaker than China. And the closer that Putin gets to China, uh, the more likely he's going to become a second player, second fiddle to Xi Jinping's juggernaut in China. And he's got, and, and Putin has got to play those cards very carefully because the last thing he wants to do is go from being sort of pushed around by the West to then switching over to the Chinese and suddenly being subordinated or assimilated by China into their new growing high-tech empire of Eurasia. So what Putin's trying to do is walk a very tight rope. He wants a greater alliance with China. He wants to use Beijing as a backstop against Western sanctions and as a cudgel against the West. But he doesn't want to also see Russia become basically a two-bit player in China's new game. Uh, and of course, China aims to be the world hegemon under Xi Jinping. This is the China 2049 uh, China dream. By the 100th year anniversary of the creation of the uh, People's Republic of China, the ultimate victory of Mao Zedong's Communist Party over Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party that ultimately fled to Taiwan. So 2049 is a year that Xi Jinping has identified as the must-have year uh, for getting China as the sole hegemon of the world. Putin knows that. Putin's intoxicated by being part of sort of getting on the ground level of this new world order that respects autocracy. But at the same time, at the same time, Putin is very aware that if he gets too close to Xi, he might end up losing everything. So he's got to walk a tightrope in that way. And that's what Kazakhstan, I think, was about. It was about reasserting Russian uh, authority over Central Asia, which traditionally the Russians have viewed as sort of their backyard, the way Americans view the Caribbean or Latin America. Uh, but the problem for him is that he hasn't had the power to do that. And now with China and the Belt and Road Initiative really trying to build trade links and eventually military links through Central Asia, notably Kazakhstan, I think Putin was trying to say, hey, Xi, we can work together to trade in Central Asia, but I'm the alpha male here. You work with me, not the other way around. And so I think that's what was at play. But ultimately, I want to be clear, I am still very worried about a, a dragon bear alliance because the more the West dings and goes after Russia, the more it sends Russia, maybe unwillingly in some cases, into the waiting arms of Xi Jinping, uh, who is desperate to get that sort of geographical pivot area that is Russia into his, under his control. And so that's very key to understand. Those are the dynamics. The Eurasian alliance, it's not going to look like NATO where we're all happy and happy talk. It's going to be very realpolitik-based, and the allies, China and Russia, are constantly going to be looking over each other's shoulder, even when they're working together to push back American power projection in Eurasia first and eventually throughout the world.
Right, and we definitely witnessed this with Xi uh, recently agreeing to uh, import Russia's wheat, uh, which is the fifth uh, largest export in terms of GDP, I think, uh, last time I checked. So, uh, in, in your opinion, is there anything that the U.S. can do to leverage conflicting interests between China and Russia? Or maybe to indirectly pressure Russia through, through acting on China some way? Well, this was precisely the plan of my friend, uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Uh, this was precisely the plan of myself and several other uh, advisors to the former Trump campaign in 2016, in which we were saying, look, we don't like Russia, we don't like the way they act, but... They could help us out with a lot of problems geopolitically, for instance, with China, containing China, uh, and also possibly uh, mitigating the threat of Islamic terrorism because Islamic terrorism threatens Russia, uh, an Eastern Orthodox Christian state, as much as it threatens the West. And so maybe there's some areas of agreement we can work toward. Uh, and let's face it, even though we've had tense relations up until that point in 2016 and 17, Russia and the United States still could basically get along. We just had to keep each other kind of on guard. Um, unfortunately, the Trump administration, because of the whole Robert Mueller uh, Trump delusion, you know, collusion delusion narrative, that Trump was some kind of Manchurian candidate for Putin, which of course he was not, not even close. Um, that that the the Washington bureaucracy, the so-called deep state, the administrative state, as I call it, uh, really worked uh, effectively to stop unfortunately, Trump, from getting that mother of all geopolitical deals that would have split Russia away from China. And now what we're having under Biden is a return to quote unquote normal, pre-Trump normal. And what that means is that the Biden administration is doing the things that the Putin regime knows most American leaders are going to do, trying to contain Russia, trying to surround Russia, trying to sort of, uh, you know, bully Russia into being a good democracy with human rights. Uh, and the problem is Putin is not going to take that lying down. For him, that is a far greater threat than anything the Chinese are doing to him right now, which is why he's so happy to look the other way on China and do deals with China, like with the wheat or with the natural gas, or even eventually these joint space missions to the moon, um, which will have huge impacts, by the way, geopolitically on Earth in the long run. Um, it's why he's willing to work with China, even though he certainly doesn't trust Xi, uh, much more so than he's willing to work with Biden, because he believes, and maybe not incorrectly entirely, that the Biden administration and the West want to destroy his regime. And obviously, for a guy like Putin, regime survival is number one, which is one of the reasons he's acting as vociferously and nastily, illegally, mind you, as well, in Ukraine. Because he believes if he doesn't hold at least eastern Ukraine and Crimea, that he's going to lose that region and the West, NATO, is going to be able to interdict and basically threaten his regime directly right across the border. And that's a no-go for him. So on his decision to go into Ukraine, ultimately, uh, I want to bring our attention to earlier this month. So that's on the start date of the Winter Olympics. Uh, Putin and Xi met and Russia and China put out a joint statement talking points on talking points on curbing NATO expansion, uh, so-called recognizing protection of state sovereignty with the Russia side confirming the one China principle. So what's your take on the in the context of Putin's decision to escalate military presence in Ukraine? So... 
what we're seeing now is that 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 Sino-Russian alliance moving on another step forward. When I wrote the article in January, I was saying, you know, there are these cleavages we want to try to exploit. The Biden administration, because it's completely inartful at everything it does, couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. That window was closed on top of the window that was closed during the Trump years to make a real deal with Russia. So now Putin uh, is moving forward with uh, sort of um, coordinating much closer now, not just militarily or economically in a limited way, but in a more general ideological way. And this is the real threat. Um, all of those cleavages, those differences that exist that could be exploited, should be exploited by the West between Russia and China, those are being plugged and uh, papered over now by pronouncements like this, because now Putin is of the mind that the West is no longer capable of doing business with me. They've cut me off. They're going to pick me apart if I let them. They're going to fight me. So I got to hit them first and then pivot to China. This is precisely what he's doing. And so the critical moment now is we're watching the solidification, still in the infancy, but a solidification of a totally avoidable China-Russia alliance. And now they're starting to look at the ideological component, the component of autocracy, the concept of multipolarity, having many different powers in the world as opposed to only the United States running the world with spheres of influence. Uh, you know, that is something that Russia and the Chinese leadership for 30 years have talked about, but they've never actually shared or coordinated with one another. Now we see the beginnings of that, and this is entirely because Vladimir Putin believes that no more deals can be made with the United States, certainly not with neoliberal and neoconservative elites like Joe Biden uh, or even Lindsey Graham running the show in Washington. Under Trump, this was our last exit ramp before a real catastrophe uh, happening between a, a Sino-Russian alliance. Again, if we could get the right leader in charge, we would be able to possibly break Russia away from China because ultimately Russia still doesn't trust China. And ultimately Russia would prefer to continue to do business with the Europeans and to still have positive relations, at least in space and on the nuclear matters, with the Americans. But right now, the avenues are closed. It's making Putin desperate. It's making him a little crazy. He's acting a little crazy right now. That speech last week when he announced the invasion of Ukraine he sounded like Fidel Castro on a bad day. Uh, so he's clearly going off the deep end. Um, and so we need to be very aware that every time we push Russia the way we do to signal our adherence to human rights or democracy, whatever, well, that has real world geopolitical implications. And now we're witnessing the nightmare, possibly, of a real China-Russia alliance. And this is something we should be trying to avoid. It's something I was trying to highlight in that article in January. So hopefully somebody in D.C. is, is listening and we'll start to reverse course. I'm not optimistic with the Biden administration, though. We'll have to have a new administration. Right, and that's looking at China and Russia uh, together on, on that issue, of course. Uh, but if we were to look at them separately, which one, sure. in, your, in your opinion, poses a uh, larger threat to the United States? Well, certainly... Um, my whole sort of public work for the last decade has been highlighting the China threat. Um, I'm a Russia expert, but uh, in my opinion, the China threat is the longer term strategic threat. They're the ones with the greater technology base. They're the ones whose economy is right behind the size of America's. And if you listen to the um, 
International Monetary Fund this last summer, they said that in the next five to six years, China will become the number one economy in the world. This is something the Americans have never had to deal with since World War I, where we're not the number one economy. That's going to have real world implications for the United States. Um, and so China, in my opinion, on its own, is a big enough danger over the long run. Our friend Albert Colby has written a wonderful book about how basically we need to prioritize China first in our dealings with standing up to the autocrats and sort of put Russia on the back burner. In the near term, though, and I have to say this again, because of really bad American policies for the last 30 years, uh, we have helped to create make Russia from a potential ally into a fanatical enemy under Vladimir Putin. And so in the near term with what's going on in Ukraine, I would say that obviously Russia's a bigger threat in the next six months to a year. However, there is still an off-ramp, as we saw with the attempt uh, from Putin and Zelensky of Ukraine to maybe get a deal done before the war really gets going. And my prayers and hope is that Putin is not as crazy as he sounded last week, and that ultimately he is looking for a political rather than a military solution. And maybe, just maybe, we can get a restoration on some level of the Minsk II agreement that would basically end the conflict in Ukraine, make Russia happy, buy the Americans time to sort of rebuild and rehabilitate their country and their military, which has been drained after 20 years, and would allow us to focus more heavily on the much greater threat longer-term threat, that is China. And one more thing, if the Ukraine crisis can be ended quickly and relatively amicably, um, then the way that Russia sees it as well, which is, you know, no more NATO expansion into Ukraine, don't even talk about it, and let Russia maybe have either direct or indirect control uh, over eastern Ukraine and Crimea, they already have direct control over Crimea, we might be able to not only slow the war and stop the war and bring peace, but we might also be able to end the Russian immediate threat because they might say, hey, look, as long as NATO is not going to expand into our backyard anymore, we're fine to leave part of Ukraine neutral. And then the Americans can say, you know what, let's work on this diplomatically over the long term. Meanwhile, the Americans are going to say, we're going to pivot and we're going to stand up hard to China because I do not believe if the threat of American military action in Europe goes away in the long run, I do not believe that Russia will be as interested in having China's back in any conflict with the Americans. Uh, that, only, that only will be a reality, uh, Russia backing China big time in, say, a war over Taiwan, if the Americans continue to threaten Russia over Europe. So we need to figure out a way out of this mess in the near term. That way everyone in Washington can focus on China, the bigger threat. Yeah, on the on the note of this, so in the past couple of years, we've seen China and Russia getting better at hybrid warfare, it's, especially in the use of cyber attacks on target infrastructure. So two days ago on Wednesday, as Russia escalated military presence or invaded Ukraine, uh, DDoS attacks were used against Ukraine's military and banking websites. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and the prospects of Russia's use of um, further similar tactics in the next few days? Well, one can expect uh, an increasing amount of DDoS and other cyber attacks. Uh, it's really going to be contingent on how hard the Ukrainians fight, how much they make the Russians bleed, and how much assistance they receive from the NATO alliance. Um, it's important to note that our gray zone or hybrid warfare that we get to do is we're going to fund and protect and, and uplift the Ukrainian insurgency against the Russian invasion. 
Uh, we'll do that through arm sales. We'll do that through training. We've done that through training. We'll do that through intelligence sharing. We'll do that through medical, you know, supply giving, uh, moral and diplomatic support, things like that. And financial support too, under the table probably. Um, but the Russians can't do that because there's no insurgency they can back against the insurgency. Uh, so what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, look, NATO, if you're going to back this insurgency and the war is not going to be over soon, we're going to start targeting Europe and American and Canadian cyber infrastructure as well as Ukrainian cyber infrastructure to make your lives hell so that you can't support the Ukrainians the way you've been and we'll have a shot at basically crushing the resistance in Ukraine and pacifying the country. One can also expect, as I talked about in the first chapter of my book, my first chapter of Winning Space is called 2022, the year a Russian space Pearl Harbor happens. And here we are. Uh, and in that chapter, it was over Ukraine uh, that a Russian space Pearl Harbor is conducted, theoretically, against American assets. And so one can anticipate if Ukrainian resistance is so forceful and so effective that they actually really humiliate Putin militarily in the early phases of this war, uh, the Russians might lash out against American satellites. We already see somewhat of a bizarre standoff happening on the International Space Station. There are Russian cosmonauts living alongside American astronauts. And a few hours ago, Dmitry Rogozin, who's the head of Russia's space agency Roscosmos, got word that the Biden administration was placing onerous sanctions on Russia's aerospace industry. And uh, Rogozin threatened to basically crash the ISS into the earth with everybody on board. Um, so now we have a situation where uh, the, the, the Russians on the ISS might become sort of poison pill crew members that might kill the Americans, that might threaten the safety and stability of the International Space Station, which on top of being an amazing piece of technology is critical for the United States having a manned presence in orbit. Uh, so there's that issue. And then there's also the issue of the undersea cables. Uh, we remember a few weeks ago, the Irish government went was apoplectic when the Russian Navy was in the Irish Sea chasing Irish fishermen out of Ireland's exclusive economic zone. Well, the reason the Russians were doing that was because there's a large cluster of undersea communication cables that link Europe with the rest of the world. And so the Russians were likely practicing and mapping where those cables were and in the, in the event of a crisis, where they would need to cut those cables to cut Europe off from the rest of the world electronically. Uh, you knock out our satellites, you cut those cables, you're going to really divorce continents from the World Wide Web, from the World Telecommunications Network. And then the Russians can really go to work on Europe at that point and Ukraine. Because without our ability to communicate militarily or even economically, we get weak. We can't fight. We can't make money. We are not strong anymore. And so those are the infrastructure areas I would be looking over the next six to eight weeks if this crisis continues. If Zelensky and Putin can't come to an amenable agreement soon, those are areas that I would be very worried about if I was a U.S. security expert on where the Russians might strike in response to our funding of um, the, the Ukrainian resistance. As well, watch out for those Russian Super, uh, hypersonic missiles that they've just moved into the theater, as well as the non-strategic tactical nuclear weapons they've moved into the Kaliningrad, as well as that they're threatening to move into Ukraine directly should the U.S. support a very forceful Ukrainian resistance against a Russian invasion of the country of Ukraine. 
Oh, wait, so I kind of wanted to zoom in on uh, something you said about hypersonic missiles because I think it deserves a much more attention than it's getting right now. In September 2020, you published your book, Winning Space. And about a year afterwards, in November 2021, we heard from the second top uh, personnel from the United States military talking about China's um, hypersonic missile test. And in an interview with China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer, uh, I think Michael Pillsburg, he mentioned that this is, uh, you know, no less than the Sputnik event. So tell us about more about what this means for, for America's or for China's military capabilities and how America should respond to it. So we talk a lot about deterrence. We talk a lot about mutual assured destruction and that being the key source to world peace. What, what an enemy can do to us, usually with nukes or some other weapon, America can at the very least do the exact same thing. And that's how it's been since the Cold War, and it has kept the peace. Unfortunately for America today, we have in China a real technology dynamo, and they in China have figured out the hypersonic weapons uh, capability that we've spent 20 years and billions of dollars trying to figure out with no luck. They figured it out in about five to 10 years. And now they have not just the theory down, they now have working physical prototypes in operation. And those working physical prototypes are not defended against by us. Our radar systems, our air defense network, not just around our bases globally uh, or around our allied countries, but around the continental United States. Our air defense network is not capable of tracking and defending against incoming hypersonic missiles. And so that's the first thing. And then on top of that, we don't have our own, and we're years away probably from having our own, whereas the Chinese not only have some, but they have the ability, as you know, to mass produce pretty much anything. And so now that they have working prototypes, they are and will continue to mass produce as much as they need to have a game-changing weapons capability that the Americans don't have a defense against. And when you have a weapon like that, where you can either deliver a conventional payload to any target in the world in under half an hour at more than 3,800 miles per hour, that can't be tracked, can't be defended against, can't be countered right now, um, you either have the ability to frighten the Americans so much that they won't risk you know, a greater war that would be more destructive to them, uh, and then they'll let the Chinese do what they want wherever they want, until we get our own capability, which is far off again. Uh, or the Chinese will wake up and do a bolt from the blue attack like the Japanese did on Pearl Harbor in an attempt to knock the Americans out in one fell swoop. And so when we talk about hypersonic, and the, and the Russians, by the way, are just as advanced now. They have the Sircon missile. They've got, they've got kind of cruise missile variants. They've got bigger variants that they've been testing. Um, and then, by the way, apparently North Korea has a rudimentary form probably given to them either by Russia or China. Iran is developing one. Um, our enemies are leapfrogging us, and they're probably sharing that technology together and the research and development together now to kind of keep the Americans off guard. Um, but now we have a point where this, technology, this technological superpower, China, has a real advantage over us. And we still haven't figured out how to do it. So Michael Pillsbury's comment that it's a Sputnik moment, yeah, it is. And I talk about this in my article at the Sunday Guardian Live uh, when I was talking about this a couple weeks ago. It's definitely a Sputnik moment. But I, I have to reinforce the fact that it isn't just hypersonics. It's space technology, quantum computing, biotech, uh, all of these new 
uh, areas of technology development with real strategic implications, part of that fourth industrial revolution, China's had multiple Sputnik moments over us, and we still haven't figured it out or paid much attention to it. So we're looking, I think, right now at the shifting of balance of power away from the United States and the West and to the Chinese and the East. And the problem with that is the Beijing regime, if they really think that they've got game-changing offensive technologies that the Americans can't defend against, they just might go for broke themselves and try to basically knock the Americans out in one fell swoop, in one bolt from the blue attack, in a way the Japanese tried to do. And the Chinese this time might be far more effective than the Japanese were at Pearl Harbor. And so this is the real threat of hypersonics. This is truly upending deterrence. Deterrence will not be reliable anymore because we won't have our own systems or our own defenses for a while. This is the problem. Wow. Yeah. Well, Brandon, I hope you I hope you come back. That this is some um, very very. Um, I, I think that I think the public needs to know more about this kind of information. Uh, Brandon Whitehurst, thank, thank you, you for coming on the show today.